I'd like to thank you for inviting me to this church today. I've so enjoyed my time with you. Uh, enjoying worship with you, a wonderful Sabbath school class. Thank you also, uh, Pastor Kim and uh, Pastor Joshua, and uh, one of your previous pastors, Pastor Joseph, uh, a couple of years ago went to uh, Israel with me, and so I so appreciate that. And uh, today I've been asked to talk to you <clears throat> a little bit about uh, kind of a, a biblical Holy Land sermon and how that affects the scripture and, and so on and so forth. I so appreciate the reading of the scripture in Isaiah 55, and I want you to notice again what it says, because I'm not sure that we always believed that, and of course the word is that when his word goes forth, it will not return unto him void or empty, some Bible says. Oh, and by the way, uh, I like to interact with a congregation, and so if I ask a question, please feel free to speak up. And so... It will not return empty or void, it says. But then it says, and it will accomplish. It will accomplish the purpose for which it was sent, and it will prosper for the, the thing that God intended. Now, how many of you believe that? Believe that? Okay. That God's faithful with his word and his promise there. Now, one other question, however. Wouldn't it be much easier for God to accomplish the purpose for which he has for his word and to prosper the thing for which he says if we understand what he's saying. And so often we get things a little off or we don't quite understand. And that's one of the reasons I'm here today, to help us to understand the scripture a little bit better and to ask God to speak to us. And so before I go any farther, would you take just a moment and bow your heads in prayer with me? Father in heaven, Lord, we only, only want to hear from you, so speak from your word today. Lord, speak to our needs as well. Still every voice but your spirit, God. And Lord, inspire and encourage us with not only facts or history, but Lord, things about you, things about your gospel that brings good news to our heart and our lives. And we thank you for being so faithful and full of faith towards us as well. For we pray that in Jesus' name. I want you to go to a scripture right away, open up the word to Matthew chapter 5. Matthew chapter 5, we're going to look at just a couple of verses, verses 45, uh, 44 and 45. And as we go there, I want to remind you of something that we here in the United States say. We say something like that, well, this person has had a lot of storms in their life, but someday the sun will rise again and, and the, your life will be sunny again. And what we mean by that is the storms represent troubles and the suns represents the good times when there's no rain or no storms. But I'm here to tell you that it's exactly the opposite meaning in Scripture because rain was always looked upon as a blessing. Notice what Matthew chapter 5 says to us, starting with verse 44. But I say to you, love your enemies. Notice the context here. Love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he makes the sun to rise upon evil on good and sends rain on the just and the unjust. Rain equals blessing in Scripture. God sends his blessing on the just 
as well as the unjust, he's saying. He says, love your enemies. That's the context here. Now, I want to remind you that uh, where Jesus' disciples were from was a very dry climate for the most part. In fact, it was very similar to our Southern California climate. It only rains for a few months during the year. Much of the, the year is very dry. And because of that, water was very precious. Now, I mentioned that rain is a blessing here. Uh, in fact, that was one of the ways that, that the enemy always tried to lead God's people astray. You may remember that Baal, the Canaanite god, was the god of the storms, the gods of fertility and so on. So you get your blessing from this god and not from this one. But if you live in a dry climate and water is precious, what do you do? You have to live. You have to water your, your livestock. Uh, and so, so what do you do? Now, there's only five springs in all of the southern half of Israel. Five. And they've been there since, well, millennium, so we don't even you don't know how long exactly, but apparently since God created them, and or the flood at least. And there's a long way in between. And if you're not near a spring, you have to do something. Well, maybe you'll dig a well. One of the places I like to go to is in Beersheba. Uh, Beersheba, you can go to Abraham's well the one that Abraham and his servants dug. Wow, that's pretty cool. 1800 B.C. You stand there at the top, and if you drop a, a stone in, you count one Mississippi, two Mississippi, you know, see how deep it is. It's a couple of hundred feet deep. Now, can you imagine what it would be like to dig a well with your shovel? Maybe you've been lowered down into this hole in a rope, well, 100, 200, maybe 300 feet. Maybe you have to rock up the sides to keep the the, the sides from falling in on you. Wells were extremely precious and were therefore always protected and would last for time immemorial because it took so much just to dig them. They were extremely valuable. It was literally life or death. And so, well would be one way that you could do it. Well, you say, well, I've heard a lot about the Jordan River. And some places the Jordan River is actually pretty nice. Uh, as it gets toward the south, it's actually very small and thin and muddy, uh, flows into the Dead Sea now. Uh, frankly, it's not a very big river. Uh, and up north, as it leaves the Sea of Galilee, it's nice and clean, but then as it meanders kind of south, it's not much. And again, if you don't near, live near the river, then what? Now, the Sea of Galilee has water in it. It's not a big, not a big lake. It's about eight miles wide and uh, or and about three miles at the top if you go from one side to the other to the major cities there. It's fed by seven springs. And that is the major water source, that and the snow melt from Mount Hermon. So that's an option that you have for water, which of course is very necessary. Or you can do something else, which was the most common thing, and that is to catch your water. If you catch your water, uh, and you, you dig a hole in the ground, and they would lime it, uh, line it with limestone, you would have a cistern, a cistern to catch the water when it does rain. Now, I have to tell you, in southern Israel especially, sometimes it doesn't rain for a couple years at a time. And so these are critically important. Jerusalem itself has several multi-million gallon cisterns that were carved out millennium ago to catch water. 
You may remember that Joseph's brothers put him in a cistern there. So here's how it worked. You built your house, water ran off your roof onto the side of your house or on the walls of your house. You had a little channel there on the rock, and it all channeled it down to a hole under your house or a cistern, which would have hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of gallons of water. And that's what you and your animals would drink for most of the year. Now, if you understand what Jesus is talking about when he talks about straining at a gnat and swallowing a camel, if you had cistern water that had run off your roof and had collected everything on the way down into your cistern, you might want to strain out the gnats in your well water too. And imagine it doesn't taste very good after it's six or seven or eight months old. So that was the major way most people got their water. Now, they, there were other things, and, and water could be a negative. They, they have what they call wadis. These are dry riverbeds. And it's actually so dry in southern Israel at places that when it does rain, the water won't soak into the soil. It literally stays on top of the soil and runs off. And these are called wadis, and, and many of the rivers that you see on the maps and stuff are dry riverbed wadis and so on. And so that's not going to work either. If you're near that, that could kill you every couple years with a flash flood. So what do you do? Well, Israel today has done something absolutely amazing. It is the only country in the world that has increased its green forests and they have doubled their rainfall because they have planted so many millions of trees since 1948. They have literally, I started going in 1985 for the first time, and wow, what a difference between 85 and today. Uh, because they, they planted so many trees on places you'd never think a tree would grow. Um, when you, you travel there, you see the hillside terraces, and they're on one side of the hill and not the other. And so, well, why is that? Because they depend on the dew points, the, the dew that comes in off the Mediterranean Ocean, and it only waters the one side of the hill and not the other. And so they get about 15 inches of rain to grow crops that way as well. Now, you may have noticed that the sermon title is Living Water. It's a Hebrew word, words, mayim haim. It's a very common saying both today and in ancient Israel. But it's not one that's well understood by too very many Christians. And so let's go to uh, John chapter 4, and we'll take a look at how Jesus uses this term. John chapter 4, verses 10 through 15. Now, I'm not going to read the whole story. I'm sure you're very familiar with it. This is the story of Jesus who meets the Samaritan woman at Jacob's well there. Uh, you can go to uh, Jacob's well, by the way, today also. It's up in Nablus. It used to be called Biblical Shechem. And uh, it's a very deep well as, uh, as well, and they have a building over it now to kind of protect it a little bit. But uh, as Jesus comes to this woman, he says a couple of key things. And again, we're only going to fo focus on the water portion. And so let's go to verse 10, if we might. Uh, again, I'm reading from John chapter 4 in the Revised Standard. And Jesus answered, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying it to you, give me to drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw with, and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than Father Jacob, who gave us this well and drank from it himself and his sons and his cattle? Jesus said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water 
will thirst again. But whoever drinks of the water that I shall give him will never thirst. The water that I shall give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. Isn't that a beautiful, isn't that a beautiful quotation? Then the woman says uh, to him, Sir, give me this water that I may not thirst and not come here to draw. Now, this living water, this Maim Haim, what in the world is that? What is that referring to? Why does Jesus use that specific term? Uh, we're going to find it again in John chapter 7. We'll look at that in just a moment. But first of all, uh, we've talked about some different water sources. Now, there is water sources that are man-made. You can dig a well. It's hard work, but you can do that. You can catch your water in a cistern. And it may keep you alive, but it doesn't, doesn't taste very good after six or seven or eight months. Um, if you don't near, live near the, the Sea of Galilee or a river or something, maybe you can dig a pond, you know, or, or some way to, to uh, maintain your water. That is all man-made. That is all from the hand of man. But water that comes from God is called living. It literally is the word for flowing. It is flowing water. So let's enumerate a couple of those living water type sources. And that would be certainly rain from God, from heaven. That would also be uh, a, a spring-fed lake, like the Lake Galilee or uh, the River Jordan that, uh, from the snowmelt uh, from uh, Mount Hamon there. And so these were looked at as blessings from God, living water, fresh water, the best water. My father grew up on a farm in Ohio, and they had rain barrels. They would catch the rain. And they would use that for drinking and cooking and so on because it was always the freshest, the softest, they said. And so that's exactly because it didn't have any of you ever played like in a summer rain or anything like that and so on. And just the, the joy of that. It's also a symbol of joy, by the way, in Scripture. Now, let's add one more thing to this. Jewish folks practiced something called the mikvah. A mikvah is a, a ritual bath. And by the way, I hate to burst your bubble, but John the Baptist did not invent baptism. It was around centuries and centuries before John the Baptist ever existed. And they were mikvah baths. Now, I need to tell you, too, that the majority of folks in Bible days did not bathe regularly. The whole idea of hygiene and, uh, you know, bacteriology and all those things that we know a little bit about today was kind of not there. Uh, even a century ago, people used to take baths once a week, you know, Saturday night or something like that, you know. Well, anyhow, a ritual bath was an immersion pool. It's at, think of it like a little square hole with a divider in the middle that you go down one side and then you come back up the other so that you are clean. Now, the issue was not about physical cleanness so much because you didn't take soap and a rag or anything down there with you. It was just to immerse yourself and come back. And when you went to temple, when you went to observe a moed, a feast, when you went to do something special or spiritual, even today, if a Jewish couple gets married, 
they um, uh, go to an immersion bath first. Uh, the, the sexes are separated, of course, you know, and uh, this can be done in private or in a group. Now, to add one more thing, every mikvah had to have living water. Living water was flowing water. And so they would have a, a catch basin for the rain. And they called this catch basin the treasure of heaven. And it would catch the rain. And then when the mikvah was used, they'd open up a, the, a little stopper and it would run down. It would flow this living water into the mikvah pool. And if you immersed yourself, then you could be clean. Now I have to tell you, as a new Christian, I used to not understand this clean and unclean business at all. Uh, I thought it was kind of silly. You know, the lepers had to be unclean and, and, you know, if you had an accident or cut your arm or, you know, clean and unclean and so on. But that was my misunderstanding because, you see, to be clean meant to be separate and to be dedicated to God, just like what we say at baptism, you know, that this is a, a public witness of our surrender to God to die to self and come up in a new resurrection in life. And so that even wasn't a new idea as well. Now, one more thing. The word clean in Hebrew is synonymous with the word hope. And so if you want to have hope for your life and hope for eternal life, then you need to be clean. And when the leper went in, in and out through the city, he would say hopeless when he's saying unclean. Can you imagine having to state your own condition, hopeless, 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 how many times you would say that a day? Often, often. And so this whole idea was not so much about the ritual, but what it meant spiritually to a person. I want to show you a, a picture now. Uh, it's a picture of me actually sitting on some steps. And I, I like this picture not because it's a great picture of me, but because where I am. And it's a little hard to see. If you look carefully, you can see those are the original steps into the temple that Jesus and the disciples uh, went into. That's literally the place that they had to walk. And uh, I'll show you another picture in just a moment. Uh, those were just excavated in the 1990s, those temple steps there. The first time I went to that, I've been going to Israel. Uh, I've been there 28 times now to Israel. And uh, the first time I went there, in the mid-90s, I stood on those steps and I wept. And the reason I wept is I knew what had happened there. I knew somewhere within a few feet, well, that's where Jesus' and the disciples not only came into the temple, that's also where Peter preached his Pentecostal sermon. Right in front of those steps are over a hundred mikvah baths the ruins of those mikvah baths because people had to be cleansed before they went into the temple. I knew that's where Jesus also healed the blind man and said, go down and wash in the pool of Siloam, which is quite a ways down the hill. That's another story there. I knew that's where Jesus, when he left the temple for the last time, said, Ichabod, the glory has departed there, where I cursed the fig tree. I, I was rehearsing all the things that happened there, and I'm looking over into the ruins of the mikvah baths and saying, God can make us clean. God can make us clean no matter what. And he does it with living water. And so let's look at one more scripture here in John. John chapter 7. 
John chapter 7, uh, verses 37 and 39. I'm racing because I want to be considerate of your time today. Uh, John 7, uh, and we're going to look at 37, 38, and 39. And notice again what Jesus says about living water. On the last day of the feast, talking about tabernacles here, that great day, Jesus stood up and proclaimed, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. He who believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart shall flow rivers of living water. So believers will have this living water, he says. Now this he said about the Spirit, which whom uh, they when they believed in him were to receive, for as yet the Spirit had not been given because Jesus was not yet glorified. He's saying you as a believer, you as a Christian, should have this living water flowing out of you. And he's talking about the work of the Holy Spirit in us to do that. Hmm. Notice his words, very specific words. In him, up to eternal life. You, get, you, you, see, you see the internalizing here. It's not, a, not an outward thing. It's an etern- internalizing thing and welling up to eternal life. Now, what God is trying to say is he has a work to do within it, in us, and it has to do with the work of the Spirit and this living water to bring us cleansing and to bring us hope and to renew us. And so I want to go to one scripture. It's become, the last couple years has probably become my favorite scripture, uh, mainly because I had skipped it for so many years and somehow it had been hi- hiding from me. Hebrews chapter 10. Hebrews chapter 10, starting with verse 12. Hebrews 10, 12. And once again, for years I had read these scriptures and frankly had, had not properly understood it. And so uh, I believe Paul wrote the book of Hebrews. And Hebrews chapter 10 and verse 12, he starts out and says, But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. Talking about Jesus' death on the cross, isn't it? Now, then to wait until his enemies should be a, made a stool for his feet. Talking about the second coming, of course, here. For by a single offering, please let yourself hear what God's Word is saying. For by a single offering, He has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. And that the Holy Spirit who bears witness to us, afterwards saying, this is the covenant that I will make with them. After those days, saith the Lord, I will put my laws in their hearts. I will write them on their minds. Um, then He says, I will remember their sins and their misdeeds no more. Now, let's, let's stop there once again. Let's go back to verse 14 because it's so easy to miss what it's saying. It says, by a single offering. What offering is that referring to? The offering of Christ, the sacrifice of Jesus. By the sacrifice of Jesus, Jesus' death on the cross, by a single offering, he has perfected us. That word perfected is an aorist tense. That means a past accomplished tense. It's already happened and done. I want to tell you something. Please catch this. When God looks at you, He looks at you as perfect because of the offering of Jesus. Whoa! Every pagan religion and a whole lot of Christian religions, you have to earn your way. You have to do a penance. You have to pay a sacrifice. You have to do something to qualify. 
you are already qualified because of the sacrifice of Jesus. And notice it doesn't stop there. He says, and then he goes on to the present perfect tense. He says, um, uh, for all time, that includes us, of course, for those who are being sanctified. While he's working that out in us, while well we're growing up into Christ. Wow. I love that. God loves us so much that there's nothing we could do or not do that ever changes his opinion about us. He already knows everything anyway. But he also loves us so much that he doesn't want to leave us the way we are. He doesn't want to leave us lost in sin or under the chains and the bonds of sin. Once we do believe, once we are converted, he wants to change us and he shows how he will do that. He says, I will put my laws in their hearts. I will write them in their minds. Well, this is the covenant that is dependent upon God, not man. It's called the new covenant, but really it's the oldest one. You can find it in Jeremiah 31, 31. Now, let's kind of pull this together. Uh, again, I know uh, sometimes when we get a little hungry, it's hard to think anything but about that. And so I want you to have a, have a good meal today. We can give intellectual assent to that, but what the enemy does is he tries to bring up to us all our failures while we are being sanctified, in other words. And every one of us can look in the mirror in the morning and say, man, I blew it yesterday. I hope today's a better one. Or you're still struggling, you know, fighting the fight of sin rather than the fight of faith and struggling just in the Christian lives. And the enemy is quick to speak into our ear, what we did wrong. My daughter, when she was about three, maybe four, I think it was about three, taught me a really important lesson. And I'm so thankful for this. Now, you have to understand, I have a very gregarious daughter. She never knew a stranger. Uh, I was pastoring in Oklahoma City there and living north there, kind of a country place, and we had a, a block there, knew everybody on the block. When my daughter was three, she left the house and went and knocked on all the doors to the people because uh, a few days earlier we'd gone to a cafeteria and I'd ordered some green beans and it had bacon in it. And so I didn't want to eat the bacon, you know, and so I put them aside. Well, my daughter knocked on all the doors and says, my daddy doesn't eat pig. So she tells everybody. She's, she just was outgoing. One day I come home and my daughter was in trouble. You see... She was very precocious and knew right and wrong and would speak up for herself. And she had her markers and her color books and her papers to write on and draw pictures on, as I'm sure you, you do too. But there was also this white wall in her bedroom. And you know what she did. She had taken her markers and decided to draw her pictures on this white wall with her markers, all her beautiful little artwork. Now, she knew she was not supposed to do that. Very clear in her mind and everybody else's. So, her mom told her, you're going to be in trouble when Daddy gets home. Don't do that to dads. Oh, that's tough. So, I get marched into the bedroom, and there's my little three-something daughter, little blonde pigtails, and she's looking at me, and I said, what did you do? Did she know what she'd done? 
Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. And then I um, asked one of the more stupid questions I've ever asked. Uh, I said, and what do you think daddy should do about that? Not the right thing to say. Because she looked up with little tears going down her cheeks. She knew what she had done wrong, just like we do. And she looked up at me, at her daddy, and she said, love me. She didn't get punished. <laughs> I didn't know what to say. She was right. You see, that's what Hebrews 10 is also telling us. Even in the midst of messing up, and when we know we've done wrong, when we, that word comes to our mouth, but we don't know where that came from, or when we struggle with somebody else's some other situation and we feel like a big failure to God or, you know, we're, you know we, we had the same problem after a few years. God says, I love you. I already call you perfect. I'm working out my will in your life and I am going to give you living water in you by the agency of the Holy Spirit that's going to well up into you to eternal salvation. And because of that, we can trust God and we can live loved. And we live entirely different when we do so. Now, let me say one more thing and then I need to pray for you and let you go. Um, you know, I didn't show you the other pictures. Uh, can we show another picture real quick here, that other wall one? Yeah, that's actually the temple steps there and that's the uh, Haldegates. Those are, the, those are the, the tunnels that go up into the temple platform that they uncovered there. Uh, and then there's two more pictures. Yeah, I wanted to show you that picture and then another one real quick. Uh, this is actually Petra. This is Petra where um, uh, Paul went after they lowered him down the, the wall there in Damascus there in the basket. He went there for three years in Petra. Petra or Seir in the Bible was founded by Esau, Jacob's brother. It's one of the seven wonders of the world. And the, the reason I had wanted to show you this too, and I won't, I won't really get into that right now, is... When you look at the life of Paul, wow, the guy was fantastic, but he struggled. All you have to do is read Romans 7. He tells you he struggled. I don't even understand my own actions. He says, I do the very things I hate. I serve the law of God with my mind, but my flesh I'm far from it. That's where we're at. And what I try to do, and what I've been doing since 1985, is I try to take people into the, the spots open up their Bibles so they can see what the Bible is really trying to say because so often geography and a little cultural or uh, historical understanding makes all the difference. I had the privilege of, of taking some of your pastors here. I think what, did we have, I think we had 31 pastors and, and wives in your, in your group, is that about right? Yeah, and I, I've probably taken 50 here from, from the conference and teachers and so on because I have a passion for that because the experiences that people have uh, and the change. And so uh, they've asked me today to have a Q&A, uh, just talk about different ways that it can happen for you and not. Uh, and I tell people, if God puts this on your heart, start praying. Start praying. I first went uh, 1985. I'd been a pastor for nine years by that time. Had no money and three kids. And God opened the doors. And so 
If there's something, if this is an interest to you, uh, check us out, Tafnim. Everything's fair game. Any question is good, good enough. But uh, let's go back to a biblical sermon here. Let's pray. God in heaven, as we contemplate the role of living water, the gift of God, the gift from heaven, the treasure of heaven that you give us by the agency of your Holy Spirit to bring refreshment and nourishment to help us, Lord, in what we need. Lord, to refresh us and to cause to spring up in us a well of eternal life. Lord, we are grateful and we just want to say thankful. And if you here today want that well of living water to spring up in you while heads are bowed and eyes are closed, just raise your hand to God. God will recognize that. God will see that. Raise your hand to God and say, Lord, I want the living water every day in my life. And as you said to that Samaritan woman, you simply said, you won't have to thirst again because your living water refreshes forever, eternally. And so, Lord, thank you for those choices that we make day by day to believe in you and follow you and the way that you bless us and love us, deserved or undeserved. Thank you for the gift of Jesus. We pray in his name. Amen. Amen.